0: evolve and thrive. Greetings, everyone. I am Erin Patton, also known as Master L, and you are at the Meta Business Millennial Podcast. Yes, you are here with us. And today I have a very special guest, a very dear friend, Casper. He and I were classmates at Harvard, and you all already know that my motto is all going from Harvard to healing. So this gentleman right here has been through the trenches with me you know what I'm saying like the trenches <laughs> at Harvard Kennedy School together and really I would say for me my experience was kind of shell in <laughs> in this culture in this programming if you want to call it of sorts and we were really trying to find ourselves find our voices find our authenticity find our truths in that path together and we became dear friends we were in the same cohort. We were, I believe, struggling in the same kinds of ways with that identity uh, quest, and he and I really bonded in that journey and have since kept in in very close touch, and I have just been an admiration of his journey to his truth and how he serves humanity, and I am so honored to have him here with us today. So let's welcome Casper.
1: Whoop, whoop, whoop.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And definitely tell the audience, tell the listeners about yourself
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Erin And uh, hello, everyone, I'm Kasper Takail Dialing in from Brooklyn, New York, but originally from England I was born in London with Dutch parents So I have three countries all with the same three colors on their flags (laughs) (laughs) Literally (laughs) But I'm glad to be here and I'm excited for this conversation Because I feel like our journeys have been parallel like they've been different but they've been in mm-hmm. the same direction so i'm excited to see where we get in this uh, in this conversation
0: absolutely absolutely and not only in the same direction i would say but really with the same intent mm. and i feel like a lot of us that went to harvard had the intent of like we want to be world leaders we want to change the world mm. yet we often came from a place or at least speaking for myself of severe insecurity and and mm-hmm. not really understanding What it took or what it takes to stand firm in who we are as we serve and lead others. So, you know, before we get into all that, I would really love for you to just, you know, share a bit more about your background. And maybe if you want to share a bit more about your Harvard experience, that may be useful for a lot of the folks out there who've had the traditional training, upbringing, and then kind of moving more or interested more in this spiritual path.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I was born and raised in England and in many ways had an unusual childhood because I went to a Waldorf school. And I don't know if you're familiar with Waldorf or Mm Siner education. It's a really beautiful and complicated way of approaching education for kids because it's really about the holistic development of the child. And that's something Mm -hmm. that was a real gift for me. So there was a lot of creativity and art. And I didn't learn French by learning verbs. I learned French by learning poetry. (laughs) And we played outside a lot. And there's really very little kind of structured learning, really until you're six. And I didn't learn how to read and write until I was like, well, certainly writing, I was still learning how to spell when I was 10. So it was much more kind of, I think, a gentle, playful, wonderful, nurturing experience in that sense. And the school had a strong community around it, and it was full of ritual. So although it kind of, Rudolf Steiner, who was the founder of this education system way back in the early 20th century, kind of was fusing Christianity and Hinduism in his own Mm -hmm. theological Mm -hmm. approach to education, interesting in its own right. But it meant that there was, you know, we celebrated Christmas, and but all sorts of other rituals and kind of moments in the calendar as well. So we dressed all in white for Whitson and we made lanterns on Michaelmas and there was jumping over the St. John's fire on Midsummer, And it, so there it was kind of like this pagany vibe in there as well. So I say all of that because that was in stark contrast then to the very kind of strict, posh English boarding school that I went to, which I chose to go to. Um, At 10, I left and then ended up in this, in this boarding school system. And I've always felt like I've been a little bit of a crosswalker between two worlds. And I think you and I have this in common. And yeah. for me, it was this like creative, safe, beautiful, community, fuzzy, happy place. And then this world of like knowledge and influence and power and smarts. And those were the two education systems I came from. And so when I ended up in college, you know, I did two. <laughs> like a, a dual degree because that's what we walkers do. So I studied history and sociology, and I know you did that too, <laughs> which I love. You get to bring ideas from one place into another, and the you know that makes you look smart even when you're not because <laughs> you're bringing something <laughs> from, <laughs> that people just don't know. You know, right? So I got really you know I loved that, but really got involved with was activism, and so I got really involved in mobilizing young people around climate change and especially the yeah. UN negotiations. Around climate change, and you know, I, I threw my heart into that. I was all in. Like I stopped flying. I became vegetarian. Like there was a lot of personal changes, and then also a lot of political awakening for me in that time as a young student. And so when I graduated, I started working in that field of sustainability and still involved in activism. But slowly had that kind of classic activist experience of burning out, where it wasn't that I didn't care about the issue anymore or that the relationships that I had weren't meaningful. But for me, it was really a loss of hope where I didn't think that what I was doing was making an impact. And so at some point I just felt completely lost and a little empty. And I had that experience of like, what do you do when you don't know what to do with your life? Go to graduate school. So I ended up at the Kennedy School for exactly the reason that you said, which was like, I've chosen this path of working in the nonprofit sector and like, I still have a lot of friends elsewhere, but I think I could use a badge of credibility. I think that would be useful in my career. It's definitely not going to hurt. You know, my parents lived in the United States for some time. Even my grandparents lived in the United States, but my my grandfather did his PhD in the US and then came back to Europe. So there was also a little bit of like familial Like this is what one does. Like you go to the U S for graduate school and then you come back to Europe. So that was my plan. When I showed up at the Kennedy school, I was like, Oh, I'll be here for two years. Like I'll get some cred, some status, and I'll go back to England into a like more senior management job in the nonprofit sector or something. Well, jokes on me because I fell in love. (laughs) I met my now husband during a J term class, like the three week classes in January, and yeah. I was like, I was taking this arts of communication class that was absolutely shit. It was bad. And so I was like, okay, how do I maximize my time in this January, even though this class is a disappointment? So I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a date with like, I set up nine dates in seven days. I said yes to anyone who asked me. And date number six was my husband. So I was like, wow. okay, great. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. But the second thing was that I kept meeting these people from the divinity school across campus. Mm-hmm. And I was, Clueless. I thought divinity school was just for Catholic priests. Like, I really didn't know anything. You know, I'd started a meditation practice very gently with like headspace. Mm-hmm. You know, I was entry, entry level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was so curious about these people. And they asked questions in a way that we didn't in the classroom. Like, whenever I explain the difference between a policy school like we did with a divinity school, Policy school, you ask, how do you reduce recidivism, right? How do we stop people from going back into the prison system? And in divinity school, they ask, why do we have prisons? And I was like, that's the conversation I want to be in. Yes. And it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense rationally. I was a gay atheist. Like it didn't make sense to me. It certainly didn't make sense to like my family. Oh, I guess my mom was like, well, you've always been interested in rituals. <laughs> like, there's these photos of me as a little kid, like dressed up all in white with like a flower garland that I've made from the garden, where I'm like laying out tinctures of like water with sugar, and I'm like, Ooh. I don't know what I was doing, but I was feeling the spirit. Uh, yes, <laughs> so she I was love like, it. go see it. <laughs> she was like, go, go, go for it, you know. And I entered into that experience, and it totally shifted everything for me.
0: I love it. And what I really want to dig a little bit deeper into is that shift because I feel like our audience members are feeling that shift, are feeling that tug yeah. and pull. And for me specifically, that shift came with a lot of trauma, a lot of tragedy because I universe knew the only way Erin was going to wake the fuck up is if we shake her and like beat her up. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's the only way she's going to get up. And I feel like a lot of people are experiencing that, especially post-pandemic, especially like this work from home. I mean, you know, we've talked to a lot of our friends, a lot of our peers who are struggling. Like they want to keep up with the Joneses. They want to keep up the status quo. They don't know any other way. Our programming is so strong around this very nine to five working life and spirituality seems so far away. So was there a moment, like even like beyond the divinity school, if it wasn't at the divinity school before, Mm. that really you were like, "I am a spiritual being. Like this is my path." Like, what was that moment
1: for you? That's a beautiful question, Erin. My mind is racing in like two or three different directions. So let me pick a couple. First of all, I grew up with privileges, too many to name, but one of them was that my grandmother would walk around her garden with me, and would be like can you see the fairies? <laughs> like, can you notice the gnomes? For her, the world around us was always infused with spirits. And as yes. a child, I knew that they like, they weren't there in the way that the like flower was there. But the way she talked about it, it was like, well, there's something real that's beyond what I can see. And like, I can believe it when I'm with her. And so I think in that sense... I was lucky enough to always have a sense of it, but I didn't have language for it. And before I moved to the US for graduate school, just after that, you know, as that that kind of heartbreak was happening around my activism where I didn't believe in things anymore, what I'd been doing, I had an incredible woman who was really only like nine years older than I was at the time called Charlotte Miller. And she said, Casper, I'm going to coach you because you're never going to ask for help. And I think in that way, we're pretty similar of like, We resisted, (laughs) right? It didn't make sense. I want to be successful. Like, I'm good at things. Like, I don't want to go crazy and be weird. You know, like, there's enough going on as it is. And Charlotte just said, what is it that you love about bringing people together? Why do you always want to sing with people? Like, what's going on in that, like, heart of yours that doesn't yet have shape in your life? And she introduced mm. me to that meditation practice and she introduced me to some books and just kind of opened that space for spirituality to be a legitimate part of my life, but also wow. of my professional life. And yes, that the world of change making out in the world has to be connected to the world of change making inside our hearts. And that mm. inner outer connection was something that I came into our Harvard experience with. And it was one of the reasons why I was disappointed with the policy program that we had, because everything was just about the outer world. And I knew that that was insufficient. It wasn't wrong, but it was incomplete. And so I wanted like some connection between inner and outer and some way in which we could be not just honest, but skillful in how we think about transformation and enable transformation in others in the world around us. And so for me, the experience of spirituality was really a sort of juxtaposition between the emptiness of like the status quo and the the kind of the train of like, okay, you've, you've been to college and now you do some work and then you go to grad school and then you get married and then you have babies and you live in the suburbs, like that kind of train. But I was like, that just feels empty. And what I found in the divinity school felt full it felt juicy. It felt alive. And I was like, I don't know where this is taking me, but that's the train I want to be on. You know what I mean?
0: Yes. And speak a little bit more to what that looked like for you, that transition, because first of all, I would say blessed in that you had that guidance from Charlotte to really yeah. enable and create that space for you to explore, especially while you're at Harvard, so much so that you were able to leave and graduate from school, being able to work. In yeah. this space. So, talk a little bit about that because, you know, the Sacred Design, the Fetzer Institute, like all those things, like I know these things, but I know our listeners would love yeah. to know what that story looked like for you and finding your team and working with your team. Any challenges you guys came up against, that would be beautiful to really understand.
1: Well, this is where I feel, again, like we're the edge walkers, right? Because when I stepped into Div School, the ex- other extreme was there too, which is like a lot of, Gentle, loving, good people with Mm. no idea what a business plan is. (laughs) (laughs) And I I don't I don't mean to be sassy, but like I guess I always kind of react to what the dominant vibe is. And like in the policy school, I was the one being like ooey wooey. And then when I was surrounded by ooey wooey, I was like, All right, let's figure out what are our KPIs, you know? And so what I found in, in the divinity school were like, who are the people who have that sense of kind of both and, right? Because I didn't want to just get stuck in, like, I didn't want to be a chaplain. I didn't want to end up, I mean, I thought maybe I'd be an ordained minister or something in a church. I did one day in a congregation as part of my internship and I quit that night. I was like, hell no, this is not my path. You know, when it's just like in your gut, you're like, absolutely not.
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: I was really a little worried about what on earth my work would be. Like, how am I going to get paid? And I was so lucky that I met two wonderful classmates, one of whom with whom I created a, a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And we went on to do kind of live shows. And, you know, because of that incredible audience, that, you know, we, we were featured on the homepage of Apple Podcasts. So we we, we were so lucky to be exposed in that way and have this audience. And that's what led to my book. Having that audience led to being able to write a book. And then my other partner, Angie Thurston and I, we met in the very first day of class and we both looked at each other and we were like, "Mm, we have work to do together because we were both really interested in the same question, which is as more and more people are less and less traditionally religious, where are they going to find community, meaning, purpose, transformation? And so we ended up writing a report called How We Gather that looked at how secular spaces like uh, co-working spaces or gyms or maker spaces or justice movements were fulfilling the same functions that traditional religious communities did, that congregations used to. And so rather than painting a picture, which most reports did, of religious decline, we were saying, no, it's a different story. It's religious transformation, right? People are still spiritually searching. People are still hungry for meaning and purpose and connection. It's just that they're doing it at SoulCycle or they're doing it in Black Lives Matter rather than in a traditional church or or synagogue or, or mosque space. So that led to all sorts of wonderful conversations and collaborations. We ended up getting some funding to continue our work of writing and researching. And then gathering these leaders together across different secular and sacred boundaries and then in all sorts of diverse religious spaces as well. So over the last decade since that work happened, my work has really been at this intersection of the secular world and sacred traditions. And how can we create new spaces, new communities where we cultivate our spirituality, where we connect with each other in a deeper way? Not that we all have to be the same, but that we are in relationship with each other as we're each on our individual journeys. And so that's a lot of the work that I get to do now.
0: That's beautiful. And because you're speaking from like, this is your career. Like, can you speak a little bit to how you personally have been integrating your spiritual journey with your business? Because this is the Meta Business Millennial Podcast, so we're talking about metaphysics as it is integrated into business. So what about your business journey over the past 10 years has been unique in the practice of or integration of metaphysics or spirituality?
1: Yeah. Well, I will say firstly that my team... Angie, who I just mentioned, we were joined by a third colleague, Sue Phillips, who is an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister. And she actually officiated my wedding. So she's a very, very dear friend and colleague. And Sue, Angie, and I have very different spiritual lineages, practices, sensibilities. I think of myself as a sort of mix of like, a third, like, English pagan forest child, you know, with my little lantern and, and, like, making my little rose petal rituals, right? Then there's a third of me that's pretty Anglican, right? So the Church of England with its formal even song services and, like, I think royal wedding, right? That's very much my vibe. So that kind of formal, beautiful, stately vibe, like, that's part of me too. And then there's this, like, I don't have language for it. That There's something about just like an inner knowing or a sense of like a a seeking for home and a being at home at the same time that I think also has to do with like growing up with two cultures, two languages, like, you know, that's that sense of longing and being there at the same time. That's part of my, my spirit too. And so that's very different from Angie and Sue. And so between the three of us, as we've run our organization, we figured out like, what are the practices? What's the language that works for the three of us that holds us in relationship and in mission. And the most important practice I'll tell you, Erin, is the practice of covenant. And Mm -hmm. for us, that's looked like really spending a couple days every year, getting together physically, ideally, and because we work remotely, getting together and talking about not only what do we want to do together, but how do we want to be together? Like Mm. what's the quality of our relationship that we want? What's our experience of the work that we want to have? And then Mm. we write that down and we kind of poeticize it. So we, we make it into beautiful language and then we read that. It's like a one page document. We read it out loud every week at our team meeting, we rotate the reading and then, you know, so that's kind of like, okay, cool mission values work that companies will do. But then here's the secret bit because it's a living document after we read it out loud, we ask each other, is there anything that we want to share with one another? What can we celebrate from how we've lived up to our covenant? And then what do we need to pay attention to of where we've fallen short? And what's so beautiful is that those words kind of become inscribed on each of our hearts. And it starts to be this like deep root from which decisions are made that are intuitive, that are like so rooted in values. You don't even need to say to each other why you're choosing something because we know that it's anchored in this way of being. You know what I mean? That yeah. may sound a little abstract, but it's very practical. And we faced some really difficult challenges. Like we had a partnership with a very prominent and beloved institution that seemed to be like a partnership from heaven. And it turned out to be a, the most difficult experience of my professional life. And at the end of the year of that partnership, We created a ritual together, and Angie really was the author of this ritual, where we sat down together for some time, like half a day, and the first round that we did, we had this loaf of bread where we took pieces of bread off and we put them in, we each had a tote bag next to where we were sitting, and every time we took a piece of bread, we named how we had contributed to the problem where we Ah. had participated or contributed to the dynamic that had been so dysfunctional with the partner organization, but also between us, between the three of us. And then we went down to the lake and fed that bread to the ducks, right? Like put it out there, send it out into the world. And then we came back and we had these beautiful flowers And we each contributed a flower from our tote bag into the vase in the center and said, what are the gifts that we're taking away from this experience? What can we celebrate each other for? What can we, what have we learned? What have we taken away from this experience? And so I illustrate all of those things just to say that for me, what really anchors the relationship between spirituality and business is like, what are the practices of how we are personally, relationally? in terms of how we partner externally. That's really where it's felt most alive for me.
0: Yes. Literally, as you were telling that story, it gave me goosebumps because this is exactly what it should look like and feel like. And it's not Mm. just meditating together or praying together. It doesn't have to be even that prescriptive. It can be something as simple as just sharing how you feel emotionally with each other in truth authenticity and honesty. And that for me was what pained me the most about my corporate experience and being in these very traditional spaces where my emotions were completely invalid. Like they weren't even allowed presence or a voice. And for me, that really looked like like a lot of suppression, a lot of masking, and ultimately my identity was completely lost. And so I feel that this is the path and the experience of so many of our listeners, so many of people who, Go to college, who get jobs, who have these big That's visions right. and dreams about how they want to change the world. Yet their ideas and their truths and who they are is shut down completely. And, and with that said, you know this has kind of been on my heart to speak to you about. But you know you articulated earlier that you're gay, you're open, you're atheist. At one point, what role at all does that play for you in spiritual space? Because yeah. I know. Let me just speak to you from my own trauma background as it relates to this. So when I was six years old, my sister. Was murdered. And mm-hmm. I think I shared this story like in Marshall Gann's class and Public Pioneer. So you've heard this before, but not yeah. many people know how and why. So my sister was openly gay in the early 90s as a teenager. And mm-hmm. so my, my dad, my parents were black conservatives. Like my dad was a huge supporter of George Sr. Bush in Texas. Mm-hmm. This is, and they were both doctors. So you can only imagine the kind of household I grew up in. And so for her to be able to be in her fullness of expression, completely shut down, not allowed. Actually, she was yeah. kicked out at a very young age. And so she was living with her girlfriend. And of course, come on now, she's 21 years old. After like six years of being open, being abused, probably violently, and in many kinds of ways, emotionally, she had a mm-hmm. lot of anger. And so her and her girlfriend got into a fight. And from what I heard, there were like, you know, like, they pulled out knives, things like that. And her girlfriend stabbed her. I know for a fact that this woman had no intent of killing my sister. But my sister ended up bleeding to death. And I knew, okay, I'm learning that, okay, I'm six years old. My sister's murdered. I didn't even find out that she was gay until I was 18. Wow, I didn't even find out the intricacies of the woman and the story until three years ago when I happened to meet the girl's best friend. Wow, and so who told me she had picked her up and because she was a homeless woman on the street and bought her a meal and was like, if it helps you or like the woman's not doing good today, you know, and that's what she told me, and I was like, actually, that didn't make me feel good at all. Like my heart, chakra right now is in pain for her. And so for me, you know, and then of course my whole life, you know, I'm raised to thinking that this is bad. Like I grew up also very Catholic, a Catholicism household. Yeah. Very. And so everything around spirituality, homosexuality, like my whole worldview, my programming really misaligned with how I felt inside. And so to coming into this spiritual practice, Of course, we understand that we're energetic beings, we're divine beings, like our orientations, our our identities are in no way connected to who we are. So, but at the same time, we still have these ideas. So I know this is a very loaded contextual thing ask you but I really had to just hold share this space with you and I'm glad thank you for holding this space with me because I would love to understand more about how you navigate this spiritual space is who you are and I know that there are folks out there too who carry this weight maybe not experiences as traumatic as I have had but certainly have had you know relationships or experiences with family members friends maybe uses around it and are still trying to come to terms with with sexual identity and spirituality and i would love to understand kind of how you navigate that Mm. well
1: erin thank you for sharing more of that story and i did not know all of that and so hearing more of that just opens my heart to you and yeah my gosh your sister and her partner and just the whole the whole system of pain that that story illustrates. So I, I hear it. Mm-hmm. And you're so right. I think there's such a deep woundedness around sexuality and spirituality, and the way in which Christianity, especially, has weaponized and ostracized um, sexuality in such an unhealthy way, whether you're gay, straight, something else. Like there's just a demonization of the body, which is profound. Now, what that looked like for me, and what it still looks like, you know, because i I walk around thinking like, you know, I'm 36. I've got my shit together. Like, I've integrated a lot of that pain that I felt as, especially as a young teenager. But then there'll be a moment like I walk into a room, especially with funny you say Catholic, especially with with like really recognizable religious leaders in a sort of Catholic style Christian context. And something in me, it's just an automatic bodily response, right? It's that trauma response of like, I'm not safe here. Or I will have to really push through. And sometimes I'll i <laughs> will be a little overt and I'll be like, my husband, <laughs> you know, uh, like, especially when I'm around religious conservatives, I will very quickly make it clear that I'm gay because I'm uninterested in engaging with people who are I want to sound eloquent, but I'm emotional. Uh, So it's like, I'm just not interested in having deep relationships with people who question my foundational, like who I am. And I had this experience recently where I'd read a book by someone, and I really admired the book. He's more conservative voice in a Christian space. And he'd written beautifully about the demise of traditional community and the need for multi-generational households and community building. I was like, yes, this is my vibe. This is absolutely me. And we had a friend in common and I texted her and I said, listen, like, what's his deal on sexuality? Like, where is he? And she was like, you know what? I'm not entirely sure. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, do I want to go build a relationship intentionally with someone who questions the foundations of who I am? Not really. And that might mean there's still some more healing to do for me to be more generous. But there is absolutely still that primal pain that I'm realizing as I get older is never going to go away. Like, it's Mm. just there. I had a a few small interactions that were painful. I mentioned the boarding school that I went to. And I remember I, I actually joined the Christian Union, partly because they had free kit Kats on a monday at lunchtime and i liked those sweets yeah. <laughs> and mr kennedy the the physics teacher was very handsome and played guitar and we all sang along on the on monday meeting so it there was a social and an eating element to it but i also remember i just felt safe i loved that space and i loved the group that met and then one day the woman who led it who was the, my math teacher was like you know made it very clear that homosexuality was wrong according to her interpretation of biblical teaching and I just never came back. And I felt, it was one of those moments where I felt betrayed. Um. I felt angry. I felt confused. And I was so lonely in those years. I didn't really have any friends. I talked to myself. I would go go on little walks with myself and pretend I was talking to someone. (laughs) Um, You know, I lived in a boarding house with 50 boys between ages of 13 and 18. And as like a gay kid, that's not a safe experience, you know? Yeah. And so for me, it's always been this place of like, yeah, where does my spirituality and my sexuality interact? It's very tender. I think that's the word that I have. It's very tender. And when I think about spirituality and religion, I think about it like fire. Like it can be the thing that makes your house a home with a beautiful hearth and candles that are lit. And, you know, like it makes a place feel alive or like a bonfire in the campsite. Like people gather, it's this place where you cook and you you're together and you talk and tell stories, but it can also burn your house down. Right? Like it can kill you. Yes. So it's like when that fire is cultivated gently and usefully and lovingly, it's the most beautiful thing. But when it's weaponized, it burns. And so there are so many people who who have been burned at a very young age and that stays with you, whatever else comes with it too, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people who are queer are turning to places like astrology or turning to places like tarot or, or psychedelics or like places that help you into a spiritual life but are not institutionally mediated, right? There's no authority saying like, you must do this, you must not do that there's much more freedom and agency. But here's the thing, Erin, as we have more personal agency in our spirituality, and we get to choose more, the thing that yeah. we lose is community. And so that that's the difficulty is like, I love that we're all seeking and creating, and but we need each other. If our essence is shared, like what is that shared divine nature then it's incomplete when we're by ourselves. And so I really think that my mission is like to help us like love the divine and love each other. Like that feels at the very core of my work these days and my being, not just my work.
0: Yes. That resonates with me so deeply. Like I was welling up in tears over here. You have really provided... The space for a healing for me in a deep way. And Mm. I love that you bring up this aspect of community because this is the part where I too struggle in terms of how do we collectively lift human consciousness if we're not working together collectively. And I'm going through this Tai Chi journey where I'm in this organization called Body and Brain. I'm a Tai Chi master now. And also at the same time, struggling with the cultural nuances of this organization. It's a very traditionally Korean organization. They really yeah. promote this concept of what they call hakshim, which means one mind. And this one mind collectivism approach is really beautiful when it works well together. But then there is also, to me, it feels like a giving up of self, a yeah. losing of my end of individuality to this collective. And, and having been like, african-american yeah. you know i'm saying black and proud yes. like that's really my foundation like having that program being like i'm really unique i really stand out you know like i'm me and how do we reconcile those aspects of the individual with the collective and yeah. come on now let's talk about that a little bit uh, let's just try let's, yes
1: <laughs> well i think you point to such a powerful piece of that which is like Culturally, we've been celebrated for our individuality, and so we should, right? Each of us brings a spark of something unique and individual that no one else has, and that is wonderful. And not but and and yes, we long for that to be connected to other sparks, right? Yes. And so, how can we hold ourselves when we're in relationship with others in real community without fully disappearing into this kind of faceless hole, which is a little bit menacing, I think, to me, right? If we've experienced that not belonging, entering into a system of structure of community is frightening, because it's going to make us disappear. And we don't want that to happen. And so for me, the challenge is, how do we build meaningful, loving community? And when I say meaningful and loving, I don't mean like, we're friends. I mean, like, Oh, you can't pay rent, let me help. Or, like, your mom's sick. Like, I'm there in your life in a way that's really meaningful, right? Yes. How do we design that kind of community without having to subsume our, our individuality? Mm-hmm. And at first, I don't know if it's possible. But second, I think the best way that I've found so far is this project that I'm creating now called The Nearness, which mm-hmm. is trying to welcome people into small groups of spiritual accompaniment and friendship, where there's no expectation that you will practice the same thing, that you will use the same language, that you will believe in the same thing. But the expectation is that we will invest in the relationships with each other. And that story about covenant that I was mentioning before is so foundational for this vision for me, because it helped me understand that we do not need to believe alike to belong alike. You know what I mean? Like if we're invested and we pay attention to our relationships and I celebrate you for your wonderful errandness and all of the ways in which like, I don't fully understand and I never will, but like, I love you and I want to see you thrive. And like, I will participate in the things that matter to you because I know that you love me and you want me to thrive and you're going to participate in the things that matter to me. So, I think we see sparks of that even in like multi religious or multi racial households where people are navigating, like, hey, we're really different. You know, my husband's from the South. It's not that he loves many Southern traditions, but like, there's just a lot of cultural navigation that we have to manage about our expectations of how you engage with strangers or like, what's the right thing to do when something goes wrong on an airline? How do you navigate, or what can you ask for? We have very different instincts. And so, I think as a society, in the midst of this growing diversity, we're learning to practice how can we not become like, you know, one single onion soup, but like that fruit salad where you may be pineapple and I may be melon, but like together, we're really good. (laughs) In spiritual community too, you know what I mean? But the challenge, sorry to like answer my own question here. And, but like the challenge with that vision is that all of us do long to be with our people, right? In one way too. And so like, I think it's probably gonna be a balance of like, if you grew up Jewish and you love Judaism, yes, you may marry someone who's not Jewish and you may be in a small group with other people who are not Jewish, but there are gonna be moments where you just wanna be with other Jewish people like you. And so I think we're gonna have this interesting balance of like multiplicity and singularity and that we just live in this in-between phase for a little while.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't know, what do you think?
0: That's a very good question. So, what resonated with me about what you just said was this ability to acknowledge that spark in others, despite because you could still be with someone that's that singular community, and that person you will never understand the fullness and the depth of who they are. Like I can be around a black woman all day and she can never understand what I've been through and the depths of my pains and my emotions, because I carry so much more than just what I have in this life. Yeah. So I love this idea of not the melting pot but the fruit salad like you know the summer salad where we're all different mm-hmm. kind of mixes but able to really honor each other and what mm. I believe it takes to get there is the fundamental self work. And yes. this is essentially what yes. I embody and teach in my practice with meta business is that as we heal ourselves as we come into the fullness of knowing of who we are and the acceptance of who we are then it is so much easier to accept others. So in many ways, as we do the self-healing, the one mind happens naturally.
1: 100%. And I think you just pointed to something that's so important, which is the sequencing. Because Uh so often we'll throw someone who's not yet ready into a Mm -hmm. situation and ask them to do all sorts of things and that actually ends up hurting them. Yeah. I've learned this the hard way. I've created experiences that are like, transformation and I'm bringing people together. I'm like, this is going to be beautiful. And for some people it really was, but for some people it brought up a bunch of shit that they hadn't dealt with yet. You know what I mean? And so I've learned so much about how do you cultivate safety? Like what are the ways in which you can pay attention to people's experience and know whether this is the right thing or not? So for example, whenever we gather people together at this point, we always have a chaplain. And just so you have someone to go and talk to, if it's getting too much. And even if you don't use that service, as it were, just having that person there means that you know that they're there and therefore that you feel a little braver of stepping into something because you know there's a little extra support. So there's all of these ways in which we can kind of design for that sense of like, um, just really be, I guess it's trauma informed design, but it's a real challenge to try and just throw everyone into the same experience because we're at different places in our journeys, you know?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I see how you call it a trauma response because you have that like protection mechanism. is like that security guard that's there to like to like catch, you know, catch those who are falling. Yet at the same time, this is part of the work, too, you know, in in that we're planting the seed, even if it's in a painful way for folks to be able to grow, if not in this lifetime, then in the next lifetime. And, Mm. And that's the age that we're in is really inspiring people to Evolve. Like humanity, God is calling humanity for evolution in this age. Like I always talk about this in my podcast, especially the solo cast. We're in the Aquarian age. We're in the age of knowing. We're in the age of gods and goddesses. We are in the image and likeness of our creators. And so we must step into this power. And it's gonna be painful for a lot of us. And like you said. Some of us are ready. Some of us are not. Yet we're planting the seeds for that, you know, blooming, that fruition when the time, place, and condition are aligned.
1: Mm. Erin, you're taking me to, have you ever come across the music of Sweet Honey and The Rock? No, not yet. It's this wonderful group. I think they started in like, the 60s i want to say it's like freedom singers black women they always have an interpreter um who does sign language for their songs it's like a group of five seven women or something anyway this one recording where they're singing wade in the water and i think it's bernice reagan johnson who's one of the founders is teaching and she says exactly what you were just saying in slightly different language but like were we promising comfort were we promising ease no no but there was something in that promise that was worth following. And I think Mm -hmm. that for me, that's still a a word that I have to remember because I don't want to sit here and pretend like I have figured it all out by any means at all. There's still so many experiences that I will have and loves and losses and, you know, just relational conflicts. Like there's still so much that's to come, God willing. But I think the thing that feels so different from when we entered Harvard as as students to where we are now is the foundation that we stand on is no longer a desire for like prestige and like yeah. now we use that education and we use that network and we still do. So we're not fools. But yes, at the end of the day, I know what my foundation is. And yes. it is one that is bigger than me and a mystery. And it is so much more beautiful, meaningful, and loving than any graded paper can ever be. (laughs) Period.
0: Period. (laughs) And I hope that this can be a great takeaway for our listeners who have maybe in the past stood on their status, which you talked about. We talked about this earlier. Just like I
1: did. Their pedigree.
0: Just like I did. Everything that I did was driven by that because that's what I thought was valuable in this world. That's what I was programmed rather to believe was valuable in this world. And now in my reprogramming and my unlearning and relearning. It's understanding and understanding that my value is derived from my connection to myself and to source and to God. And when we stand on that, when we stand on that truth, then we're really able to be grounded. We're really able to plant roots and we're really able to grow and thrive, to your point, Mm. and build those connections and see people for who they are and not get ticked off when people are maybe not their best selves in the moment. Like we have more patience, we have more compassion, we have more empathy. And that's what I believe the one mind, the collective consciousness is, period. Mm. It's just that. And like you said, that can be anywhere. That can be in the grocery store. That can be in the mm-hmm. yoga studio. That can be, in, I live in this massive apartment building. It can be in my building, you know, just in the elevator at the concierge desk. And that's really where we experience that oneness
1: Mm, So true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also want to just mention something that you were just pointing to that language of evolution. One of my favorite theologians that I've read recently is this woman, Ilya Delio, who she, Mm -hmm. I think she was a chemist by training, but then she became a nun. She became a Catholic nun and was like, okay, but this is too much. So she's now created her own like kind of progressive order of nuns i think there's three of them but she is a theologian and a scientist so she has phds in theology and in science and her whole language of god is evolution and so she is just so captivating in how she describes like just as we're changing god is changing and the way in which the relationship between the natural world and us as part of that created world are in relationship to this God that is changing. I just find so exciting as a, yeah, just as a, as a way of, you know, cause so much, so many of us, especially those of us with a Christian like back, cultural and religious background, it's so hard to get away from the man in the sky who sends thunderbolts to yeah. people, you know, like it's yeah. just so dominant yeah, really. in all of the artistic representations. And so to think of God as like change of God is alive Um, which of course is very Octavia Butler too. Yeah. (laughs) I find that such a rich and imaginative image. And I think we need better spiritual imagination. We need people to give like you're doing, right? Give voice and image and practice and attention to what the divine is so that we, so that we can pay better attention to it because we have a better imagination of what it might be.
0: Yes. I love that at having more imagination around divine energy and around our own energies is what actually we've been robbed of. And that's why I'm so, so grateful. You opened up with your educational history Mm. and how the first 10 years of your life was about cultivating that imagination and that creativity. And, you know, one thing that we all know, I don't know if Jesus said it, but we know it's in the Bible to be like a child, to remain like a child. And that, always kind of has resonated with me, that curiosity of children. Now that I'm a mother, I have a three-year-old. He's so open. He's so expressive. He's so fullness in his childlikeness that it inspires me to be more expressive in my emotions, to be more in my present feelings, to honor that. And so in that evolution into adulthood and in our training and our programming, we lose a lot of that imaginatism into what I kind of deem like a seriousness. Even in spirituality, this is my challenge. And what my challenge has been to date is how how motherfucking serious I am. I got to go ahead and (laughs) speak my language. I get so serious. like Yeah my Harvard education, my corporate education. Now I got to wake up. I have to do my sun salutation. I have to do 103 sun salutation. I have to do my (laughs) prayers. I have to do my meditation. Like I'm so disciplined to a fault, like to a point where I'm punishing myself, even in my spiritual practice. And so this has just been something that has come into my consciousness of recent that Mm. I need to invite. More playfulness, more fun, and more love into my journey, into my being.
1: Aaron, you've just unlocked something for me because I use this word tenderness to describe the relationship between my sexuality and spirituality, and it's making me realize that exactly in opposition to that kind of taskmaster spirituality vibe that I think we're also prone to, the opposite to that is tenderness, and so um. I'm thinking about how like so many of the wisest, especially older people that I know, the gentleness is one of the things that strikes me. You know, people who are really spiritually alive, even if physically they're coming more frail, there's this gentleness to them. And so I'm thinking about tender and gentle and just the way in which there's maybe, despite all the pain, one of the gifts of that experience of conflict, right, between sexuality and spirituality is like, if I can stay in that tenderness long enough not to run away from it. And because that's the fountain of how I want to be in the world, right? More compassionate, more gentle, more loving, more forgiving. So I really appreciate what you just shared. That's really beautiful.
0: Yeah. And you know, as you say that, what also is coming up for me is that embodiment of the feminine energy.
1: So what we have been lacking... Oh, yes. We need that goddess energy like yesterday. (laughs) Like yesterday. (laughs) Like
0: yesterday. So I I always tell my mentor, I have been a very good man. I've been a very good man my whole life. Like, very good. And now it's time for me to really start to embody and integrate more of that nurturing, feminine, receiving energy. And that I believe is also going to help with that connectivity because we all know that the masculine energy is that of war, of action, yes. of getting things done. And it's the feminine energy that brings that groundedness, that connectivity, that nurturing. So I really feel like we just answered our question right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Final thing I will say, and this is so funny that we're landing here. Yeah. You know, at least for me, when I have a reaction of being like, ooh, ooh, ooh. It usually means, like, there's something there to be working with. And, like, I, for some reason, one of my, like, late-night YouTube spirals that I go down once in a while. I love watching drag queens. And so I think there's something in my sexuality, spirituality journey in the next decade, which is, like, finding my inner drag queen. And, like, I think she's going to be some sort of priestess figure. I don't know yet. But anyway, your invitation for the feminine energy, I feel like she's there waiting to emerge. So let that be an invitation.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes, Come on, queen. Come on, queen. I can't wait to see that. And yes, we're going to leave it right at that. Come on, we're going to embody more of that goddess energy. We're going to bring more of that queen magic into this space. And I would love for you to share with listeners. You talked about your book. You talked about Nearness very briefly. Can you share a little bit more about those ventures that you have and how they can engage with them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So The Nearness is a six-week journey to nurture your spiritual life in a small group with other people. So it's a great way if you've been you know, journaling or practicing by yourself, but you don't really have people in your life with whom you can share that with. The Nearness is a great opportunity to kind of find other people on the journey. And just like I said, they won't believe, you know, use the same language, have the same practices as you, but we've designed for that diversity. And so you'll end up feeling more connected with yourself, with the world around you and the people you love. So head on over to the co-op, and you'll find all the details there. And the book is called The Power of Ritual. Hopefully you can still find it at any good bookstores. And yeah, if you want to check out more podcasts that I've been involved with, check out The Real Question. Or Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, if you uh, if you like thinking about fiction and meaning making. So, I'm really grateful, Erin, for having me on the show, but more just for like seeing you. Just gosh, I don't even want to say like chrysalis butterfly. Like I don't know what kind of more beautiful like bird there is <laughs> that, that has emerged <laughs> from who you were. It's like you were always someone who I like just gravitated toward naturally. Your energy has always been hopeful and just fun. But I feel like what has come in this last decade is this like wisdom and courage that I admire and respect so, so deeply. So thank you for leading us and just living the life that you're living and and letting us get a glimpse of it. We're so grateful.
0: Thank you so much. (laughs) You guys, these are real emotions right here. Y'all are seeing. Man, I love Casper. I love this conversation. This was so healing. This was so necessary. And I pray and I hope and I encourage Mm. you that are listening to take all of these nuggets of wisdom with you, these teachings, these feelings, because this is what's going to cultivate that which we are dreaming about now, Mm. that lifting of consciousness, that raising of vibrations, that collectivity as one, because... The wars are useless, the violence is useless, what we've known up to date, it don't work. But this right here, this is what works. Conversations, honesty, vulnerability, and just putting it all out there to just be heard. Like this is what works. So if you want more of this, definitely continue to follow us at the Meta Business Millennial podcast. You can also check out more resources at the meta and I just have to say, I love you all so much. Peace. (laughs) Did you really love this episode of the Meta Business Millennial Podcast? Well, I am honored and I appreciate you subscribing, leaving a review and sharing it with your friends because your feedback allows us to co-create more enlightened conversations. And if you're interested in growing your soul now, head over to my website, aaronpatton.com to find all the show notes, links, and free resources to get your energy activated today. In the meantime, stay bright, my friends. Much love and light. Peace.